The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at this saying and wondered what sort of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Fear not, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive in your womb, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the child to be born to you shall be called Holy, the Son of God. For behold, even your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for she who was said to be barren. For nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel left her. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we believe that you inspired Luke to record these words. We believe that these words not only had power in the day that Luke wrote them, but they have power this day. And so, Father, in keeping with this, our collect for the second Sunday of Advent, we pray that we would so hear, read, learn, mark, and inwardly digest this holy word, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. <clears throat> Mary's story here in Luke chapter 1, Mary's story is in many ways our own story. Mary's story is in many ways our own story. Yes, Mary has a very unique role in salvation history. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But in many ways for us, this story here in Luke chapter 1 of Mary and the Annunciation of the birth of Jesus, that we see in her the role of proto-apostle, first apostle, proto-disciple, first disciple. I mean, consider for a moment that Mary is the first person to invite Jesus into her life, literally. And she is the first person to bear Jesus into the world. And so as we look at this story, it is not enough for us to simply be amazed at this young, probably 14-year-old girl in Nazareth saying yes to Gabriel with God's message. Don't just stand by amazed at the story, but be prepared in this Advent season to have the Lord 
call you into your own version of this Mary story. Mary's story is in many ways to be your story and mine. You see, Mary's story shows us that God makes a nobody a somebody for the sake of everybody. God makes a nobody somebody. And that somebody will be for the sake of everybody. You see, it's hard when we think of Mary as a nobody. And and the reason this is hard is these inconsequential beginnings of Mary's life get lost in the fact for us today that she's the most famous woman in history. I mean, honestly, take a moment. Is there any other woman in history more famous than Mary? And as a result, we can miss such an inconsequential beginning. We can miss how much of a Nobody she is before God steps into her life. Verse 27 here in Luke chapter 1, if you're with me, verse 27, we're given her name, Mary. And that's all we're given. Mary, a common name. There's no reference to her father's lineage. No house of Israel that she stands under. No position within Israel. And there's actually nothing said about her own personal righteousness or standing before God. Yet, For now, all we have is her name. And when you compare that, for example, with the other birth narrative in Luke chapter 1, the birth narrative of John the Baptist, the one we sang of today on Jordan's Bank, the Baptist's cry, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, when his birth is announced by the same angel six months earlier, we hear all about Zechariah and Elizabeth. They have very clear status Within Israel. Listen to chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. That's his priestly category, his station, his rank. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. This is the first high priest of Israel. She's in the Aaronic lineage. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. In comparison, we just get this girl's name, Mary. And not only is she a nobody, but she's from nowhere. She's from Nazareth. Now again, because of Jesus of Nazareth, now we forget how much of a small outside of the main thoroughfare place Nazareth was. Nazareth was not just small. I mean, you can imagine what Nazareth represents in Israel. I mean, think of that place, probably close to the place where you grew up. It's that other town close to where you grew up, you know, and and that place would be kind of the middle of nowhere. Monica and I lived in a place once we referred to as the armpit of Alberta, right? The, the, of, of the province we we're living in. Like, it's just that place. And not only that inconsequential place, but not really a good place. Because as you find out that it's in Galilee, Galilee, though a Jewish part of the world, was so mixed in with immorality and Gentiles and pagan practices that they got a nickname for themselves in Galilee. Galilee of the Gentiles. 
And so to consider Nazareth, it's not just inconsequential. It's not really a great place to be from. This is why when you get to John chapter 1 and Nathaniel is being introduced to this new rabbi called Jesus from Nazareth, his response is natural. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is where she's from, a nobody from nowhere. See, the problem we have as we begin looking at this Mary story, and we recognize that she, in fact, was a nobody before God came into her life, is our problem is we are so busy in our lives trying to make ourselves into somebodies. We're so busy trying to find status and to be affirmed and to find a footing and to find a standing in this world. We're so busy trying to become somebodies that we're shocked at the thought that Mary, before God comes into her life, is an absolute nobody. But we need to remember that in the scope of human history, in the grand sweep of the great narrative of the world, that you and I are absolutely, unless God shows up in our lives, inconsequential. We are nobodies. We are small. We are weak. We are nothing. We do this strange ritual every Ash Wednesday. This strange ritual, and you all participate in it voluntarily. I mean, think about this. Think about how strange a ritual it is that we come in on Ash Wednesday and you all voluntarily come to the front and one of the priests will put ashes on your forehead with the words from Genesis 3.19, remember you are dust and to dust you shall return. As we begin that season of Lent, we're being reminded that we are formed of the dust and in our sin and in our brokenness, all we are is dust that's eventually going back to the dust. We need to be reminded of the inconsequential nature of what it means to be a human being. How small we are. We need to be humbled in a world that is so busy trying to find status for itself. And so we come on Ash Wednesday and we're reminded this heavy yet true reality that you are dust. It's interesting. I read a couple years ago that some churches were thinking that it was a little too heavy you know, this whole Ash Wednesday thing, you know, it's heavy. It's all about sin and brokenness. And so in a few of those churches, they were beginning to mix glitter in with the ash. As if at the time of the imposition of ashes, instead, you should be told, remember, you are fabulous. <laughs> Mary's a nobody until God comes into her life. And so are we. I love how Psalm 8 describes our place before God, the amazement at God's care for humanity. The psalmist says, when I look at your heavens, at the work of your hands, the sun and the moon that you have set in place and the stars, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. I mean, this is the honest first position of a human being before God, is to recognize that before God, unless he comes into our life to do a work, we are nothing. We are dust returning to the dust. But here's the amazing story about Mary, is God does enter her life, and he takes this nobody, and he makes her into a somebody. Verse 28, greetings, O favored one. Some of us know the older translation, Hail Mary, full of grace. 
favored. See, the problem we have is when we hear that language of favored one, Hail Mary, full of grace, we begin to think, well, that's because Mary is an extra special individual. Out of all the people in the world, she alone had this unique place to be called gracious before God. And yet, as we read through the whole of Scripture, we find that that word grace, and that's the word favor, grace, charis. The word grace is a biblically loaded word that in every place and at every time that it's used is used of a favor which is unearned, a favor which is gracious, a care and provision and blessing that is not merited. That's what grace is. When the angel comes to Mary with those words, greetings, O favored one, it is not because she's earned it. It's not because she's merited it. It's not because God has finally found a woman worthy to come into the world through. No, he comes to this nobody and says, I choose to favor you. You see this in the creation story. See, God is always in the business of making something out of nothing. Right? We talk about God created the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. Right? God didn't come into a preformed universe and do a bit of tinkering. No, there was nothing there. And then God, out of the nothing, said, let there be lights. And behold, there was lights. God is always in the business of making something out of nothing. That's why we get those strange stories in Genesis. Right? You know that, that strange story? It's like the boy in, uh, who's in Sunday school, and he hears about this strange story in Genesis, how Adam was made out of the dust of the earth, Right? And God breathed in his nostrils. And then, even weirder, God takes a rib out of Adam and makes the woman, Eve, out of Adam's rib. Again, something out of nothing. And the boy is so shocked by this rib story that he goes to play hockey later that day. And as he gets hit into the boards at one point, he gets a cramp in his side and he falls down on the ice and starts wailing and bawling his eyes out. The coaches come out and the medics come out and say, what is wrong? And he says, I'm not crying because of the pain. I'm crying because I'm about to have a wife. <laughs> Think about it. It was a lot funnier on the page. Um, These strange stories of God making something out of nothing is always to remind us that this is the very gracious nature of God. Right? God is always in the business of coming and making something by his own loving grace, not because we've earned it. I like what C.S. Lewis once wrote, he said, this world is a great sculptor's shop we are the statues. And there's a rumor going around the shop that some of us are someday going to come to life. That's the story of our redemption. God coming and making something out of nothing. I love how Jeremiah, in his calling, is reminded of this. When God comes to call the great prophet Jeremiah, he doesn't say, Jeremiah, I've looked down and I've looked at your your resume, and it's, it's pretty impressive, Jeremiah, so I've decided to call you. No, what does he say? 
In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, he says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. I took nothing, Jeremiah, and I made something you to be a prophet. See, we are called to recognize that if this is true, that whatever somebodiness we have, whatever amount of somebodiness that we have now, position, place, privilege, power, it's gift. It's gracious gift. We were nothing, and yet God gave it to us because that's what the creator does. Takes nothing and makes something out of it. Mary's response is the only appropriate response. It's her Magnificat, that famous canticle that we say in evening prayer. And the word Magnificat gets its name from that first line. This is Mary's heart attitude because God has made her a somebody. When she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations shall call me blessed. Mary understands that God has made her into someone by grace. Formerly, she was nobody, and she praises him for it. But not only does God take a nobody and make her into a somebody, but God makes this nobody a somebody for the sake of everybody. It's not just for her, it's for the sake of the world. Verse 31, you will conceive in your womb and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. That God, through Mary, is going to bring Jesus into the world. And that name, Jesus, it, it means something. The Aramaic or Hebrew name, Yeshua, Jesus, means God saves. I mean, Matthew chapter 1, when the angel visits Joseph, is even more specific. When the angel Gabriel, same angel, says to Joseph... You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That this one who's coming is a savior who will bear the sins of the world. This is the one that's coming into the world through you, Mary. You're a nobody. I made you a somebody, and everybody's going to get Jesus because of this. But also, it's not just a savior who's coming. Verse 32 tells us it's the king. The king is coming. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. In such a divided and dark world, through Mary, the true king comes into the world. When we look at the conflicts in our world, when we look at the darkness of our world, 
It is because of human sin and human misery and human rebellion, but it is also because we are not standing together under the true king. That the banners of the nations would gather under him. As Isaiah chapter 9 tells us, that Christmas text, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those dwelling in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. And what's the light? That they've come to some higher thinking? That they finally pulled up their bootstraps and managed to figure out their own personal morality? That they've figured out their own system of government and they've worked out how life can be ministrated correctly? No, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. On the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. This baby who is coming into the world through Mary, this nobody now made a somebody, this baby is for everybody, the Savior and the King who will lead us and rule us in righteousness. And this King will show the world what true kingship looks like. In a broken and divided world, in a broken and divided country, This king shows us what true leadership looks like. And let me say this, that this king needs no Twitter account to declare who he is. And I'm not speaking partisan. I'm talking to both sides. I think today if every politician gave up their Twitter account, we would be a gloriously happy people. This king needs no tweet self-promoting himself, but rather it's nailed above his head Here is the king of the Jews dying on a cross for his subjects. It was like under communism, there was this story of a little Russian lady who was quietly in the underground church under communist Russia continuing to pray. And one of the soldiers of the secret police at one point found her and found a small rosary in her hand and she kissed it and the soldier said somewhat graciously I suppose dear mother will you not also kiss the feet of the statue of our great leader and she says oh well I will when he's crucified for the sins of the world This is what leadership looks like. This is what the king looks like. And this is the one who's brought into the world through this nobody who's become a somebody for the sake of everybody. But here's what's amazing. As amazing as all this is, here's what's even more amazing. That you and I bear that same savior king before this world. Yes, it's different the way we do it. Mary has a unique role in salvation history. We give her the title, that that title, Theotokos, the God-bearer. She alone bore the Son of God in her womb and had that unique role in salvation history, and we call her blessed. But understand that you and I as disciples today following in that same pattern and tradition of Mary, we too bear the King and the Savior into our families, 
into our communities, into our world. We are nobodies who God has made into somebodies for the sake of everybody. We see that because in verse 35, there's this great moment where Mary says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel says this, listen to the language. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. How how are you going to live into this incredible call? This impossible call? The Holy Spirit and power from on high, which is the same word of the Shekinah glory that came upon the tabernacle and the temple. God's own presence will come upon you. Holy Spirit and power. But here's the cool thing. Remember, Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and Acts. Luke is part one, Acts is part two. Chapter one of Luke, verse 35. This impossible task of burying the king to the world. How will it happen, Mary? Says, asks, the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. In chapter one, verse eight of the Acts of Apostles, when Jesus, the risen Savior now, is sending his church out into the world to be his witnesses, this impossible task of these broken people bearing his name as witnesses in the world, he says, you will be clothed with power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It's identical linguistically because it is the same call. Each of us will live out this call in different ways. Mary in her own blessed way, but you and I still in the most incredible, impossible ways. God is calling you and me. Nobody's who he makes somebody's to bear the king into the world for everybody. What's amazing is Mary says yes because she recognizes there's a cost. There always is a cost when we say yes to this call from God. There's always going to be a cost. Something's going to have to be given up, the cost of discipleship. Mary knows. At least she knows some of the costs. Here's what she knows it's going to cost her to say yes. She figures it's going to cost her her fiancé. She's betrothed. She has no idea that after Gabriel visits her, he's about to make a stop off in Joseph's dreams. She doesn't know that. She assumes, as Joseph initially intended, Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, you know, when she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit, Joseph decided to divorce her quietly, not wanting to expose her to shame. But the Holy Spirit, the the, the Angel Gabriel appears to Joseph. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She figures she's lost her fiance. That's gonna be a cost. She figures that the cost of saying yes will be her body, her womb. You will conceive in your womb. It'll be her security Verse 27 and verse 34, we're told she's a virgin. This is the first century. As soon as she is to be with child out of wedlock, all of her security will be gone. And she doesn't even know what else is coming beyond that. The cost is going to cost her her family. She doesn't get to give birth in Nazareth, her hometown. Where does she end up giving birth? Bethlehem, alone 
with her husband. It's going to cost her her safety. After the baby's born, Herod, the king, is going to hunt this family down. They're going to become refugees in Egypt. And it's going to cost her her own son. As she stands beholding him dying on the cross. This is the cost of Mary saying yes. And she says in verse 38, let it be to me according to your word. Everyone who says yes to Jesus, you and I included, will have a cost to saying yes to this. This incredible life that's offered, the true life that we've been waiting for, but it means that we're going to have to say no and goodbye to the old life. Peter, his cost is his fishing nets. Matthew, his tax booth. James and John, their father Zebedee's family business. Zacchaeus, his wealth. Saul, his religious status as a Pharisee. And Mary, her womb. As Jesus will say to his disciples, whoever would be my disciple must daily deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. I like how Friedrich Buechner writes of this moment of Mary saying yes. Now just as a note, because I always get an email whenever I use this quote talking about Mary, angels are not omniscient, okay? God knows what Mary is going to do. The angel is not omniscient and he may not know. Beekner's being creative about the wonder that even is in this angel as he delivers this news. She struck him as hardly old enough to have a child, let alone this child. But he had been entrusted with the message to give to her and he gave it. He told her what the child was to be named, who he was to be and something about the mystery that was going to come upon her. You mustn't be afraid, Mary, he said. And as he said it, he only hoped she wouldn't notice that beneath the great golden wings, he himself was trembling with fear to think that the whole future of creation hung on the answer of this girl. Mary said yes. A nobody. God made a somebody for the sake of everybody, bearing the king into the world. Mary's story is to be our story. We, nobodies, nothing that God in his grace has made into somebody that we too, in our own way, would bear the king, the savior, into our families, into our communities, into our world for everybody. The question we have on this second Sunday of this Advent season is will we today again say yes?
let it be to me according to your word. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.